Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker is Dr. Daniel Bennett. Dr. Bennett is an associate professor for political science at JBU. Good morning. Oh, okay. It's eerie being up here in in complete silence, so thank you. Thank you for that. My name is Daniel Bennett. I'm an associate professor of political science. Thank you. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Today, we continue our semester's focus on the wandering of God's people through the desert on their way to the promised land. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's holy and inspired word in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. As my pastor is prone to say, this is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would be with us in this place this morning and that our time now would be pleasing to you and edifying for us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It is a joy to be with you this morning. I've been thinking about the last time I spoke in chapel, which was February 13th, 2020, exactly one month before President Pollard announced JBU's transition to remote learning because of the pandemic. Now, as a social scientist, I'm trained to distinguish correlation from causation, but I can't help be hopeful that my talk this year doesn't bring with it the same disruption from two years ago. (laughs) This semester, we've been reading of Israel's journey out of slavery and into uncertain trials and battles. We, too, have been in a state of uncertainty over the past couple of years, adjusting to life during a global pandemic before slowly moving back to normalcy. Even today, this uncertainty continues with new and novel variants of the coronavirus emerging, followed by recommendations and requirements from the government, private businesses, churches, and universities to say nothing of different voices telling us the right ways and the wrong ways to respond to these developments. Of course, our uncertainty is a product of the fall. But there is no part of past, present, or future that is unknown, beyond, or uncertain to God. And though we may face difficulties and challenges through uncertain times, the hope we have in our risen Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. 
Okay. Today's passage turns our attention to a familiar story that takes an unusual turn. As we've seen before this semester, God's people are tired. They're impatient. They are growing more and more frustrated with every passing day. For years, they've been wandering through the desert on the way to a supposed promised land until finally, after yet another day of trudging through the wilderness, they can take no more. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? They ask. It's been a long time since the Exodus. In fact, it's hard to fathom how long God's people have been waiting and wandering. For us, a long time may be a manner of days or weeks, as when we're waiting to hear back about a job prospect or college admissions decision. It may be a manner of years even, as when we're waiting for the opportunity to become parents, for healing from chronic illness, or for reparation of broken relationships. But the Jews had been waiting for decades since their liberation from slavery to inherit the land that had been promised. They knew what the Lord had promised to them, and yet they found themselves continually waiting without any sign that they were getting closer to the promised land. So you can imagine the frustration that they had with God and with his servant Moses when they lashed out at God and accused him of abandoning them to die. But we must also see just how faithless God's people are being in this moment. Recall all the ways in which God's, God had provided for them since their deliverance from Egypt. The escape through the Red Sea, daily water and food in the desert, victories in battle. But at this moment, the faithfulness of God is not on the minds of his people. Instead, they are pointing to all the ways he has seemingly abandoned them. Instead of praising God for his steadfast provision during trials, they are cursing these very blessings as worthless. Their grumbling has blinded them to the ways in which the Lord is caring for them in their wandering. I imagine we can all relate to this story, even if we have never spent decades wandering through the desert on the way to the promised land. When things are going our way, we are prone to rejoice and to give thanks to a God who gives and gives generously. But when things turn south, be it relatively minor things like disappointing grades or difficult coworkers, or more serious things like damaged relationships or personal tragedies, we are prone to frustration, to anger, to lashing out at God for apparently turning his back on us. Of course, God's faithfulness to us is everlasting. It covers the highs and lows of our day-to-day -day lives and is not contingent on our changing circumstances. There are seasons of life where we, meet, we, where we meet, may be in deep, deep valleys, but even in those moments, the Lord is faithful. That doesn't necessarily make those seasons any less painful, but for Christians, we can take heart that the same God who suffered and died for us also walks alongside us today in the best of times and the worst. Back to Israel. They're bitter. They are completely done with their wandering. They're blaming God and they're blaming Moses for their predicament. And as a result, they are stricken with what is essentially a plague of venomous snakes to the point that according to verse 6, many people of Israel died. Actually, it's not just that they are stricken by these snakes. The text is clear that God himself is responsible for sending the deadly snakes among the people. Why would God send fiery serpents 
to afflict Israel in the first place. It is not out of spite or rage against his people. Rather, it is a consequence of their sin. A holy and righteous God cannot excuse or brush off sin. Doing so is contrary to his perfect nature. Israel made sacrifices not because God took pleasure in the deaths of pure and undefiled animals. Israel did this because this was necessary to appease the wrath of God against sin. It was the only way they could be absolved of their sin. God's wrath is not born out of anger. It comes in opposition to sin. So, as they have done so many times before, God's people repent of their sins. They acknowledge that they have sinned against God by lashing out at him and his provision for their needs. And they pray that God would take the serpents away from them. And as he has done so many times before, God hears and responds to their prayers and provides a way out for his people from misery and death. As one writer put it, because he is holy, he must deal with our sin. Because he is love, he chooses to offer us mercy. Notice though what God doesn't do here. He doesn't simply make the snakes go away as Israel had prayed. Instead, he has Moses fashion a serpent from bronze and display it on a pole. He tells Moses to instruct those who have been bitten to gaze upon the serpent, promising that those who do will not die from their wounds. Rather, they will be healed and find life in the face of sickness and death. The fact that God doesn't just disappear the snakes is instructive. While God promises to forgive our sins, we nevertheless often must live with the consequences of these sins. When we go to the Lord in confession, we do so knowing that while he is faithful to forgive us, we may have to deal with the repercussions of our sins in a world marred by the fall. The story of John Henry Ramirez offers perhaps the best and weightiest example of this. One evening in 2004, the 20-year-old Ramirez was high on cocaine and marijuana while driving around Corpus Christi, Texas in search of someone to rob so he could buy more drugs. Eventually, he spotted Pablo Castro taking out the trash at a convenience store where Castro worked. Ramirez parked his car and followed Castro inside. Ramirez killed Castro stabbing the 45-year-old father of nine 29 times and took what he can find in the man's pockets. It was a dollar and 25 cents. Ramirez fled to Mexico but was arrested in 2007 and was eventually convicted of murder and sentenced to death. During his trial, he didn't deny his guilt and during his sentencing, he read Psalm 51.3 to the court. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Over the years, he regularly met with pastors and spiritual advisors, including a pastor at a church where, near where Ramirez awaited his execution. At some point during this time, Ramirez became a Christian. He was scheduled to die last September, but the U.S. Supreme Court granted him a last-minute delay so it could decide whether his pastor could be with him as he is executed, praying for him and even laying hands on him. 
Last month, the Supreme Court ruled eight to one for Ramirez, declaring that Texas should allow the pastor in the death chamber as Ramirez dies. Everything Ramirez has said publicly suggests he understands why he is being executed. He doesn't blame anybody but himself for what he did. According to a story in the New York Times, Ramirez declined to attribute his actions to his childhood marked by abuse, instability, and poverty. There's a lot of people that live like that and even worse, and they didn't end up on death row, he reflected. They didn't end up becoming murderers. He also said he is confident of where he'll be after the lethal drugs are administered and his lungs and heart stop working. I know where I'm heading, he has said. I know what I believe in. Ramirez, at peace with a God who forgives the unforgivable and secure in his eternal hope, must still face earthly consequences for his sins. So too did Moses, who was referenced in the book of Hebrews' Faith Hall of Fame, yet nevertheless was barred from seeing the promised land as a result of his distrusting God and his instructions. So too did David and Abraham and Noah and so many people of deep, deep faith depicted in scripture. And so too did Israel in today's story. So while Israel is nevertheless suffering as a result of its sins, let's pay attention to what exactly is required of them to be saved from their afflictions. They don't have to make a special sacrifice. They don't have to physically touch this pole or to be within a certain distance from it. They don't need to recite a specific phrase or set of words. All they must do in order to live is to look toward a bronze serpent. That is all that is required according to God's promise. Now, given what we know of God's people and their unfaithfulness, it shouldn't be surprising to learn that it didn't take long for Israel to twist this gift of mercy into something warped by sin. In 2 Kings chapter 18, centuries after Israel found relief from the venom of the serpents, we read of King Hezekiah ordering the destruction of idols. Verse four says, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Our sin nature is truly relentless in taking the things of God and forming them to suit our purposes. Thankfully, though our sin is relentless, so too is the mercy of God. In the New Testament, Jesus himself points to Numbers 21 as a foreshadowing of his death on the cross. Most of us are familiar with John 3.16, but in the verses immediately prior, Jesus draws a parallel between himself and the bronze serpent. In speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Commentators also point to a clear similarity between the serpent on a pole and the person of Jesus Christ. One author writes, Jesus in the place of the snake is the source of healing, the source of rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. Another author writes, Jesus was snake bitten for us. He became our sin on the cross, the sin we've inherited, the sins we have committed, and the sins we will commit. All of it hung on the pole of the cross in the person 
of Jesus. And yet another author writes, if you're truly bitten, there is nowhere else to go. If you're truly bitten by your sin, let Christ no longer be foolishness or a stumbling block to you, but let him be the power of God to salvation. Look to Christ and live. The Christian walk is not one free from suffering. It is not a life promised by the prosperity gospel and those preaching doctrines of health and wealth. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples and us that while we are in the world, we will have troubles. Notice that he does not say we might have troubles. In a world corrupted by sin and antagonistic to who Jesus is, troubles are guaranteed. But praise be to God, this is not the end. Jesus goes on to encourage his disciples to take heart, reminding them that he has overcome the world. As such, so too can we. We may have trials in this life, but our Savior is not one who cannot sympathize with our experience. As he is, as one hymn says, a man of sorrows lifted up to die. But unlike us, this man of sorrows is also God incarnate, the same God who provided relief for Israel in the desert from the deadly venom of serpents. There's a reason the most prominent symbol in most Christian traditions is a cross. Though it was a tool of torture and death in the Roman world, the cross depicts the hope we have in our resurrected king and of life in the age to come. Importantly, we need not physically gaze upon a cross for healing and salvation, like Israel was told to look at a bronze serpent. But just as God provided relief from suffering for his people following yet another instance of rebellion, so too do Christians have the opportunity to turn back to Jesus each and every time we fall short. There is no expiration date on this promise of grace, nor is there a punch card that can be used up. The well of the Lord's mercy is infinitely deep. For us as sinners, this is good, good news. As we make our way through Holy Week, on the way to Easter Sunday, may we remember the only thing required of us seeking the saving power of, of Christ, to look to him and to acknowledge our need. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he tells them that salvation is not given because of good works or worthiness, but rather as a free gift of God through the death and resurrection of his son. In chapter two, Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We do not earn our salvation as Christians. We cannot earn our salvation as Christians. We are saved only because Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, defeated the sting of death once and for all. We are inheritors of this victory through no work of our own. Again, for us as sinners, this is good, good news. As was the case of Israel in the desert, all that is required of us is that we look to God and ask for the healing and redemption he has promised. Let's do that now together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.